Hello and welcome to episode number 308 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have been including neuroscientists, economists, and a variety of individuals of various fields. In this one, we will have an investigative journalist on the show. Carrie Gillum joins us. She is the author of the Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. And I have had in the past Robert Billot, attorney for representing against DuPont, and he was in the film Dark Waters. And that was the closest I have gotten to discussing with an investigative journalist of some form. Tell me how you got into the field that you are in. Gosh, I've been a journalist for more than 30 years. I uh, always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I uh, started out covering corporate America, uh, different industries. I've covered insurance and healthcare and the banking industry. And in 1998, Reuters, the international news agency, asked me to move to Kansas and start writing about uh, this very interesting uh, new thing that Monsanto had introduced, which was genetically engineered seeds or GMOs. And so it became my job, my beat, uh, my assignment basically to learn everything about food and farming and agriculture and, you know, which is a very, very big, important business, obviously, um, global trade. That's a very important uh, industry for America and for countries around the world. So. GMOs uh, were an important change, an introduction that remade uh, agricultural practices in a lot of countries. So, you know, since 1998, I've been covering Monsanto and DuPont and Dow, Syngenta and other very big companies that uh, are involved in seeds and chemicals that we use in farming. One thing that came to mind as I was looking into your book was, what does the world look like without investigative journalists? <laughs> Well, I would say it would be a very dark place, right? I, right. Mean, I mean, unfortunately, you know, there are examples, you know, that date back right forever, probably, of uh, government and, and powerful industries, companies, institutions that are not transparent, not forthcoming with members of the public. And uh, they just aren't. It's the nature of the beast. You know, it's one of the foundations of our democracy in the United States that we have a a fair and free press so that we can investigate and bring truth to light. And, you know, it's, it's sad, I guess, in a degree that we need journalists to bring truth to light. We would hope that people wouldn't be hiding things that are so serious um, and dangerous. But as we've found, you know, over and over and over again, they often are. And that was certainly the case with, with the agrochemical industry and the different things that I've written about for 20 some years now. Decades of experience in the field, being prolific is super duper and cannot be competed with. I've always talked about that. Prolificness is something very representative of one's internal forte. Now, one time I talked with Jeffrey Kane. He was the author of Samsung Rising. He looked into Samsung as a company in South Korea and how they're connected, but not like in the realm of a problem happening. This is in the realm of a problem that had happened. Would you be doing investigative journalism if it was just exploratory or is it more in the sense of there's an issue and we'd like to resolve it? Well, you know, I mean, journalism is journalism and you can call it investigative or not. I mean, I don't know that that necessarily matters. Uh, journalism is you know, finding out the facts about a certain issue or an event 
uh, or circumstance that is important, you know, to more than one person necessarily uh, that, you know, crosses over in terms of public policy or public health, um, you know, that affects the environment, uh, these sorts of issues. And so you can call it investigative. Uh, that tends to mean it's it's harder to get at. You know, I, a lot of the work that I do is filing Freedom of Information Act requests, um, trying to gather documents and data from agencies like our Environmental Protection Agency or Food and Drug Administration or the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, you know, we've also gotten documents from a number of state universities around the United States. And the team that I work with, you know, is uh, gotten State Department documents. We we really are trying to get to the truth of a matter uh, through documents, um, data, and then share that with other people. And um, you know, so that's what I've done basically throughout my whole career uh, is just try to, as I said again, bring truth to light. And sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, sometimes you never know if you really have gotten to the truth of the matter, um, to the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. Uh, but you just you just keep trying because, you know, with every issue that we confront as a society, um, you know, the, the more truthful information we have, the more facts we have, uh, the better, in theory, we should be able to come up with solutions or protections or a path forward that is best for, for you know, the larger community. I mean, that's, that's what we strive for. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case... You teamed up with an individual, Lee, who is in the book. Can you tell us about Lee? And can you also tell us uh, where does the pushback come in this case? Yeah, so my first book, I've written two now about this. Whitewash. <laughs> yeah, the first book um, was came out in 2017 and was all about, it's called Whitewash. Um, it's about how Monsanto and other industry players had worked really hard to both promote the use of this chemical called glyphosate, which most people know as Roundup, uh, Roundup herbicide weed killer used by homeowners and farmers and uh, golf course operators, cities and towns you know, around the world. But uh, how Monsanto had engineered you know, just this, this real push to make this the world's most widely used herbicide, the most widely used weed killer um, on the planet and really drove it to historic levels. So, so much so that this weed killer is ubiquitous now uh, in the environment. Our government researchers and independent researchers find uh, glyphosate residues even in rainfall, uh, as well as surface waters, drinking water. Um, it's in our food, it's in our soil. They find it in air samples and uh, commonly glyphosate, uh, this pesticide is found in human urine if you have your urine tested for things like that. So my first book was really all about that and the history and the data and the documents and the company strategy and the impacts on the environment as well as human health and what science was showing us. This second book that I did, uh, the Monsanto Papers, was really, and this just came out in March of 2021, but really a much um, better, uh, more human interest story, I suppose. And this is the very first person, Lee Johnson, very first person in the world to take Monsanto to court, alleging that exposure to these Roundup glyphosate weed killers caused him to develop this type of cancer called non-Hodgkin lymphoma that he's been told you know, will, will kill him. 
um, very shortly. He was initially told that he had about 18 months left to live, but he has outlived that diagnosis now. Um, but his trial was just filled with so much drama and intrigue and twists and turns and documents revealed from inside Mon Monsanto's long secret files. Um, you know, just as I watched it unfold, I thought I've got to write a book about this. This is just so fascinating and compelling. So that's where the book came from. And, and yeah, I got to know Lee pretty well. And he's, he's an amazing person, just what he's gone through confronting, you know, his own mortality and this extremely painful um, type of cancer that he has, and then going up against Monsanto in court. Um, it's just, he's an incredible person. Is it the human condition that is the strongest motivator for this kind of work? Because without the connection to the person, it's hard to make it a thing. It's just the company and sales and products. But then when a person is impacted, suddenly it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is John. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the case with, with all really good journalism, I think, is you bring it back to a personal level so that people uh, can, can feel it and can care about it. Uh, you know, when I many years ago was writing about the impact of the Iraqi war, you know, the war in Iraq and so many um, lives that were being lost and, and soldiers and other. One of the ways that I told one of those stories, I mean, there were many stories, but, you know, was to go to the home of a widow who was receiving, you know, the flag uh, and, and the remains of her husband uh, being brought back and to tell her story. Uh, and to tell a story of a young soldier getting ready to go off to war and the farewell party that his family had for him. I mean, I think it's always important to, to show the humanity and, uh, and to engage the empathy of readers, um, as I said, so they will care. So this book is really devoted to cancer patients, you know, people who are suffering uh, from this disease or who have lost people from this disease. And you really get a window into that world uh, in this book, I think. Now, how does Lee, as one person, relate to or connect with the various people affected by Monsanto? How much is he the representation of a lot of people? How many people are involved in this kind of scenario? Well, in the United States, over 100,000 people uh, are involved in the litigation, have sued this company, Monsanto, which is now actually owned by a German pharmaceutical company, Bayer. Um, but yeah, over 100,000 people similarly situated to Lee developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma that they allege is due to their exposure to these Roundup glyphosate-based weed killers. And the company Bayer has now agreed to, they've, they've lost all three of the three trials that have been held today, Lee Johnson's and then two subsequent trials. And the last trial, the jury found over $2 billion uh, in damages was due to a man and wife who both developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma after spraying this glyphosate-based weed killer um, you know, very routinely um, around their properties. So Bayer has decided that they want to settle the litigation. They don't want any more trials. And they've agreed so far to pay out about $11 billion to try to settle that. Um, they're not having full success, uh, more lawsuits are, are being filed, more trials look like they're coming. But, but this litigation is something that has you know, reverberated around the world and made different countries look at perhaps banning glyphosate entirely. Mexico has said that it will ban glyphosate as of 2024. 
Uh, many other countries, you know, France, Germany, Italy um, have looked at restricting use. New York City just passed a ban uh, in public spaces on glyphosate and other pesticides. Uh, you know, the world is waking up to the dangers that these pesticides bring with them to human and environmental health. As far as Monsanto, what was their counter argument to this issue? How can they defend against a person having cancer in relation to their product? What's the pushback there? Yeah, I mean, the science, this is one thing I've learned in all my years of reporting, you know, science is, is uh, rarely, I would say, maybe absolute, you know, at least in, in uh, initial stages. And there have been, of course, you know, decades now of scientific uh, inquiry into the health impacts of glyphosate and glyphosate-based weed killers. But there still is a divide, perhaps. You know, you have a lot of scientists, independent scientists in particular, who've been doing research and studying the literature, uh, who believe very definitely this shows carcinogenic properties and causes cancer. The International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, classifies glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen with an association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, but Monsanto and our Environmental Protection Agency in the US, regulators in Europe, regulators in Canada, and many other countries say, no, the evidence is the opposite. The science does not show that glyphosate is a carcinogen. And they point to a number of studies that have been done by the companies, Monsanto and other companies that sell glyphosate. And they look at those studies and say, those studies uh, provide them with evidence that it is not carcinogenic. Um, so Monsanto in the trials made much of that and brought in their own experts and talked about science that shows that it doesn't cause cancer uh, in their analysis and their view. Did one question that came to mind is that glyphosate is the focus of this and this is their product. Is there a, an alternative product that is not as carcinogenic that could, they could have easily switched to that makes sense or not really? Glyphosate came into popularity really as one of the very most effective and the safest herbicides uh, brought to market. And there really isn't another herbicide uh, and wasn't at the time like it. You know, it was considered very novel, um, very groundbreaking. Uh, farmers had been using a lot of uh, a chemical called paraquat, for instance, which is another weed killer. <clears throat> paraquat is something that is so dangerous that if mixing it up, some of it would splash or something into your, into your mouth or into your face, you were probably going to die within seven to 10 days. It was so acutely toxic and farmers knew that. So Glyphosate, when it came around, you know, some people would joke uh, that it was safe enough to drink. You know, it was sort of the opposite of Paraquat. Uh, it, it wasn't going to kill you if a little bit got in your mouth. Um, but, you know, studies over the long term, of course, have shown that it might be uniquely dangerous in terms of the impact, uh, you know, on DNA and its ability to damage DNA. Uh, and there's other science that shows that it uh, potentially is having a very harmful impact on the microbiome, uh, the gut bacteria, if you will, that affects the human immune system. And it's been shown to be damaging to the health of the soil uh, and the environment overall. And a lot of this concern has built as the use of glyphosate is built um, because it stands out now, because it has been used so 
widely um, and the push to use 300,000 you know, pounds a year in the United States uh, right now, where in the 90s, they were using you know, 20, 25 million pounds a year. So um, it's part of the overuse, I think, that has created uh, quite a problem. But still, you know, farmers and others really have very few resources in terms of synthetic pesticides, synthetic weed killers. There are a whole array of you know, tools in the arsenal for, for those farmers who are looking for more natural techniques um, and more time-honored regenerative or sustainable practices, uh, like using cover crops and rotate, rotating crops more and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, if, if you talk to a farmer who's still using glyphosate, uh, they're typically going to be using other chemicals as well, piling them on top of glyphosate to try to, to kill weeds at this point. That makes sense. Professor Bill Sullivan, I once talked to about the importance of gut bacteria. Paraquat would clearly affect gut bacteria. So not recommended to casually put in a smoothie. Makes sense. Now, other than Lee, who are individuals you would come across in examining this case? Lee was a main contender here, but who else comes across in the process? Yeah, yeah well, of course, through, through this process, I've met so many um, plaintiffs, so many people who you know, have cancer themselves or their spouse or they've lost somebody. And that's just so heartbreaking you know, to talk to those people. I was talking to a woman this morning you know, whose husband is dying of cancer and she's there among the plaintiffs. But in the book, um, you get to know not only Lee and his family and his children, but this team of kind of um, really standout lawyers, uh, kind of eclectic. Some of them are a little bit wonky, wacky, you know, different. They're each different. Uh, this team that brought this roundup litigation uh, to court and made history. Um, but, you know, you meet them all. There's his, his lead attorney in the beginning was a man named Mike Miller, who's a Virginia attorney, a guy who, you know, cut his teeth uh, on pharmaceutical cases. Uh, there's another gal in Denver, Amy Wagstaff. She's a products and pills gal. None of them had ever really taken on a pesticide company. Surely none of them had ever dealt with Monsanto. And you find as you follow this team in the book and you follow how the case unfolded, they were just astonished at some of the tactics that they saw Monsanto employ uh, in the legal world. And they'd never, never come up against a company that would do the things that Monsanto did. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating. It was fascinating to watch. It was fascinating to write about it. And I hope that readers think it's fascinating to read about it all. Shout out to the readers, and I believe they do. I must say, how those attorneys went kind of wacky in switching from what they were doing to something else. I've always noticed that some of the best efforts or material in life comes from you were doing something for a while and then you completely switch and there's this thing that's out of your bounds and then that becomes something you do great at. Is this any sort of out of bounds for you from before in some way? What is a big out of bounds you have had in your existence where you reached, you kind of forked in the road in your existence? Oh my gosh, I don't know. There's probably a lot of them. <laughs> I do these challenge questions. I think reading a, or writing a book was certainly a big challenge for me and it was not my idea and it was certainly not my desire when I wrote the first book. The publisher actually came to me. I was working at Reuters, you know, a very busy, intense schedule, you know, an international newswire 
and they had seen all the articles I'd been writing about, you know, this agrochemical industry and said, could you write a book about it? And I said, good Lord, no. <laughs> but uh, I ended up then leaving Reuters at the end of 2015 and uh, joining a nonprofit group to do more research into these issues and then starting this book. And writing a book is hard. I mean, I know a lot of people have done it and are very prolific at it. Uh, it's it's incredibly time consuming, I think, and intense, and you just lock yourself away from the world. And so now writing two books in the last, you know, three years, four years, um, is, has been a journey for me. And I've learned a lot. And uh, it's become, you know, something I'm quite passionate about now is trying to take what I learn about the agrochemical industry and pesticides and the impact on health and environment, and to share that with as many people as I can, because, you know, there's so many, what, what I've learned and what I guess is obvious maybe to a lot of people is there's so many environmental contaminants in our world now, you know, that we have created and allowed for expediency and for, you know, um, just the ability to do things easier or faster. Um, but what we're doing is we're polluting our, wa our water, air, food, and we're polluting our bodies. And we're seeing that in, in cancer rates. We're seeing that in childhood uh, illness rates. We're seeing that in Parkinson's and uh, autism and ADHD and fertility issues. And we're creating a really, really scary, sick world for our future generations. And uh, you know, we, we need to, to see that and to do something about it. This is an issue I have discussed in various contexts with individuals, sustainability is one of the heftiest things of the next couple of decades. Now, one thing you mentioned, the book writing, I always talk about that the heftiness of writing a book is a big deal to me. That's why I like books, because to get to the point where you have a solid package and an idea and all the supporting content, that's not light. And I think most people are not able to do it. If you go to a bookstore, you think, wow, a lot of people are able to do it. That's a very, very small minority of the public that is able to has something they want to say, puts it together cohesively, does the research. It's great how much research comes through with the book. And then it comes out into a whole package and that stays forever. You've now written the two books. Those two books are there. They will remain there. That's the cool thing about books. That's a, a full timeless entity of sorts. So yeah. I and, I, and I want to say with those books, because because of my experience covering Monsanto for so many years, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Monsanto, but uh, they, um, you know, I've covered really big banks and, you know, other big chemical companies and very powerful players, but no one like Monsanto in terms of the tactics, techniques, the pressure points, the harassment, the intimidation, the threats, um, the things that that company has been willing to do to try to silence people or intimidate them. Um, to discredit them. And they, they tried to do this to me. We uh, were able to get some internal documents from Monsanto through this litigation uh, that showed that they had a whole plan, you know, a whole spreadsheet basically designed to take down my first book, Whitewash and discredit it and discredit me. And that played out and has, has played out um, against me for years now. And, uh, you know, realizing that I'm just one little person, you know, but seeing the level of attention and effort and resources that they put to attacking me, 
you, you know that has played out around the world in much bigger uh, ways against scientists and you know really anybody who's tried to challenge them. And we did see them try to do this against the International Agency for Research on Cancer as well, trying to smear the names of these you know, really sort of gold star, very renowned scientists who've built their career studying cancer science and writing papers uh, and trying to smear them. So it's a long way of saying my books were even that much more, I, they're nonfiction, they're based, every word is locked down, documented, you know, based on nothing but facts. And, uh, the, you know, so you can't take liberties, you know, you've got to, you got to lock it down. The first book won three awards, including a Rachel Carson book award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. And I was asked to speak to the European Parliament and all around the world, really, about, about my findings. And the industry hasn't been able to um, knock it down, you know, at all, but they sure keep trying. Um, right. So, <laughs> you know, I like that you mentioned the Rachel Carson Award at the same time. I always think there's a counterforce. So if there's hefty pushback in some form, which is threatening and or uh, not warm energy, if you will, then that is almost always paired up with a counterforce of grades for somebody tackling something. Because if it's not taken on, you can stay in the neutral world. It's like that quote, boats are safe in harbor, but that's not what boats are meant for. It's like if, you, if they're just there, they'll stay clean. They won't get all kinds of rust and damage or whatnot, but they didn't build the boat, so it would stay docked and just not move at all. So That's a great quote. That's a good observation. I think about these things. I'm very personality and uh, quote kind of content driven, sort of philosophers, if you will. One thing that comes to mind is before you go at such a topic, do you think in the back of your mind, okay, I am taking on this corporation, this entity, there's definitely pushback. And that's why you're very careful with all the facts in the book. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, and I've, I've done that my whole career, really. I mean, I've, uh, you're, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody does. You're going to, you know, mess up the spelling of a name or get a date wrong or, you know, something like that, or sometimes much bigger errors. But, uh, if you, if you don't have the trust of your reader, if you can't, back up what you're saying, you know, then, then there is no reason for trust. And so, yeah, I, I've always been exceedingly cautious about fact-checking backwards and forwards and, and up and down. And uh, I'm a, astonished a lot to see how the respect for that seems to have ebbed um, so greatly, you know, in recent years. And you see so many things on the internet now and through social media that just are completely made up you know just complete fantasy and uh and and it's sad and it's hard for i think the just every average reader to know well what is true and what isn't true and i mean just as a small example again uh, you like examples well i mean there's a there was an article written about me uh and a couple weeks ago by this group that very recent gotten funding from Monsanto, you know, they were a front group and I've written, you know, we have documents where they're begging Monsanto for more money and Monsanto's giving them money and they're exchanging, they're saying, we're going to help you defend, you know, your chemical, you know, give us some more money. So it's this group uh, and they write terrible things about me and other journalists and scientists and everything, but they just wrote this thing a couple of weeks ago about how I 
was working for the law firms who have sued Monsanto and had a financial relationship and had met six times in this law firm office, you know, very specific things, none of which were true at all remotely. And they had no, no proof, no documentation, no anything. And when I, when I put it out to them, like, this is ridiculous. They said that it was up to me to prove it wrong. It wasn't up to them to prove it right. And of course, you know, that, that's just insane. But, uh, but I think you see so much of this on a whole array of topics now and, you know, intentional misinformation and intentional distractions uh, and certainly industry and institutions that have a lot of money and have a lot of power can, you know, really create a lot of confusion about important issues. And that's something we need to figure out a way to deal with, I think. You can kind of feel it from the content that it's almost like a money to tire you out. Almost, It's almost like, hey, Carrie, you're a terrible person. Can you give us three reasons why you are a good person? And now you have a job to do of like, okay, let me go ahead and collect these three reasons. Wait, I didn't have to do anything yesterday, but now I have to collect these three reasons why I'm this, this, this. So it's like qualification from nothing, which would just tire me out if it was happening. So it's almost like money meant to just tire you out so that you are not uh, making an effort well it's harassment and they've done it you know there's a couple of scientists that uh, were part of this well world health organization um, meeting that they have just you know spent endless amount of hours and time writing horrible things about that aren't true other journalists the Pulitzer Prize winning journalists for the New York Times uh, that they've written articles about calling these reporters liars you know and that sort of thing it's just um but I still get people, you know, friends of mine or somebody who will say, oh, my gosh, did you see this horrible thing about you? I mean, <laughs> like, well, we're not going to we're not going to worry about that. Right. Somebody pulls up a paper. Carrie, did you know you're terrible because of these three things? <laughs> you, you wouldn't have known. Unless oh, gosh. Really One of them a long time ago was um, that I was a foreign agent. Let's see. No, I was an unregistered foreign agent acting on behalf of Russia to try to undermine, you know, faith in our food supply or something like that, you know just ridiculous stuff. I didn't know I was speaking with a foreign agent speaking <laughs> on behalf of Russia. Okay, everybody who thought I was speaking with an author, that is just put to the side, foreign agent right here. That's true. If you have a, you can either counter points. There's like a popular podcast in Miami lately where they talk to a lot of guests and they have them on the show. And when somebody can't counter a point, or this is on a lot of shows, not just that one. Uh, when a point cannot be fully countered, suddenly it's like, uh, discredit the person all these other tactics because the point now has been left alone in life i've noticed if i'm ever having a discussion with somebody and they switch from the points i'm like okay i won or not one but like clearly you didn't have a counter on the logic is very uh objective there's no out of it yeah i think clearly that's that's a sign that you don't have a, a lot you know a, a good factual counterpoint when you switch to a personal attack so but again, I think we see so much of that in our society now. And, and I wish people would uh, think that. I think the COVID and the pandemic certainly um, didn't do anything to aid that. I think we're still in a dark place, a dark mean place a lot in our social interactions, social media interactions at least. Especially when you're actually saying something which is happening in this case, there's gonna be a lot of I've thought about that. Like there's the neutral and then how far do you want to go into making and then you're going to get some negative on the counter. I, I'm very cautious about what I talk about because 
there's too much like pinpoint uh, making people uh, offended in some way. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind is, are there any other people along the lines of what you do who you have seen as an example who have also maybe taken hits battling some organization uh, in the same way? Oh gosh, I mean, I think I think almost anybody, right? Who's <laughs> who's raised a hand and said, "Hey, hold on," you know, the narrative, the story being told by this very powerful industry, uh, you know, is is not necessarily true, you know, and we should look deeper. I think anyone in that in that space or taking that uh, role has been attacked over history. I mean, if you look back, you know, Rachel Carson. I got a photo of Rachel Carson back here. Um, Silent Spring, you know, the author and scientist who warned us, you know, decades and decades ago about indiscriminate use of pesticides and how it was going to, um, you know, do so much damage to our natural world and to our health. You know, she's been proven right over and over again. Um, but still, you know, she was attacked back then. She died of cancer. She's still been attacked um, on so many people, so many journalists, scientists, uh, you know, our politicians, I mean, the list goes on and on. Linda Birnbaum is a, is a scientist who I just hold in really high regard. And she ran our National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences and National Toxicology Program uh, for years and years and years. She was a career scientist. Uh, she just retired, I think it's been two years ago now. Um, but she came under just intense attack from members of Congress and companies because she was one of the people warning and saying, look at the science, look at the body of information that we have about the dangers of environmental contaminants like pesticides and other chemicals that are being widely used. And look at the damage that we know is being done. And we have to um, address this in some way. That message almost, you know, she was attacked, as I said, by members of Congress, they went after her, they tried to get her fired. Uh, She had some of her work censored. Many scientists I've talked to in our U.S. government, you know, have had had their work work censored um, or will only speak to me, you know, secretly because they're afraid of getting fired if they speak truth. Uh, you know, it's it's not the way the system should work at all. When you mentioned pesticides, you reminded me just like last week I got from our water agency, you know, a monthly report, and I was looking through it in detail for some reason just to check. And there's a disturbing amount of pesticides that are in materials where like they have certain ranges of levels that they'll allow. And the reason for these is pesticides or farming or certain, and just, it's now part of the system and they have to deal with it and they have their filtering processes. But you could tell that you're seeing the after effects of what you're referring to in organizations pushing uh, beyond their bounds. And now everybody has to deal with it, whether you take the hits for bringing it up or not, it's showing up now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the Food and Drug Administration every year puts out a report uh, about pesticides in foods. And because we know pesticides are in food because they're used in farming. And so the USDA and the FDA both every year try to do a sampling to keep sort of an idea about these pesticide levels in our foods. And, you know, in the most recent FDA one, they found 212 different types of pesticides uh, in the food that they were sampling. And this is commonly consumed. This is food that they get off grocery store shelves or uh, from suppliers to the US. Uh, they look at some that comes in um, from outside the US imported food. But these are fruits and vegetables and fruit juices and you know cereals and grains and uh, bread and that sort of thing. And 
212 different types of pesticides. And, you know, these are foods that people are feeding their families every day. And, uh, you know, that some of them, chlorpyrifos was right up there as one of the most prevalent found. Uh, chlorpyrifos is known to be neurodevelopmentally damaging to children. It's, it's so dangerous for kids that many countries have already banned it. Our own scientists in the EPA have said no amount of this is safe in our food or water, and yet it's still being allowed, you know, in our food and water. Um, so, you know, this glyphosate certainly is not the only pesticide we need to worry about. I describe Monsanto and glyphosate as sort of the poster child for the bigger problem. Um, but when you have a food system that is awash in these synthetic pesticides, and so many of them have been shown to be harmful to our health, you're, you're eating food every day with these pesticides in it. So even if you're not somebody out there spraying or you're not some, live near a farm or live near a golf course, or you're not spraying these chemicals around your own yard, you're still um, being exposed through your diet. And you know, in the case of some of them like glyphosate through rainfall, through air. Uh, it's, it's hard to get away from them and we know that they hurt our health and we know they hurt the environment and we should care about it. That makes sense. Speaking of caring, I can sense that you have a strong level of empathy. I feel that. And so what might you say are a two or three features of yourself that are definitive characteristics you identify with? These questions are so cool for me because I'm really personality oriented. I mean, the first one, you know, my husband jokes about this all the time. Uh, I got it from my father. We were at a memorial service for him. He died of cancer last year. We were at a memorial service. Rest in peace. Uh, and uh, thank you. His, some of his friends were saying, you know, about how outspoken he was and how he was somebody who, you know, didn't mince words and didn't have time for nuance and, you know, niceties. He was, he was going to drag you to the truth, you know, and, and force the hard conversations. And, you know, my husband, I guess, is sort of the same about me. I have no filter, you know, uh, if it's true and it's important, let's talk about it. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't worry about if it makes people mad or it makes people don't like you, um, you know, if it's true and important, you talk about it, you deal with it. And, uh, you know, tenacity, that's something again, you know, I get my, teeth into something and I don't want to let it go. And, you know, it's really hard to, people keep telling me to stop. It just kind of makes me want to keep going more, I guess. So uh, yeah, and empathy. I mean, that's the, <laughs> the glue that holds us all together, right? That uh, for community and society and, and family and friends and uh, it's caring about other people and trying to put yourself in their shoes and trying to see the world through their perspective and their lens and seeing um, value in that. You know, again, I think so many people want to lock themselves into one side or another, one position or another, and don't want to ever consider um, the, the gray that's between the black and white. And I think that's where a lot of solutions probably lie you know, is, is in the gray area. It's not forcing someone to completely come over to your side uh, or vice versa. It's, you know, meeting in the middle. So, you know, and that's why when we talk about pesticides, I'm somebody who hasn't ever said, yes, we definitely need to ban glyphosate, uh, which a lot of people say, uh, you know, but I think we need to understand the risks and we need to come up with balanced approaches that better protect people and better protect the environment. And 
Maybe that's a ban in certain places. Maybe it's more restrictions. Maybe it's a warning label so that people can be more aware of the risks that they're facing. Maybe you don't spray it directly on food crops. I mean, there's a whole array of, of gray, you know, between the black and white. So I think that's another characteristic I have. I'm always looking in the middle. <laughs> the gray area is a wonderful place. I think I actually had one episode. Maybe I talked about it extensively because it's not so hard hitting and it leaves more room for open-ended connection whereas hard hitting items it's either open or closed and now if it's closed that person's gone that person's gone now you're on an island an island you don't really have the networking effect and i like that like connecting with this person and they have an idea and then that person proposed this and it starts to build up momentum in that way the gray area of sorts what is one message you would want all people to know or take away from this specifically the monsanto papers there are a lot of them. Um, I guess, <laughs> Narrow it down to the top six. Cancer, there's two. I'm going to say two. Cancer is killing way too many people. And, and if, even the people it doesn't kill. 40% of men and women in the United States right now, and I don't know the stats for all the other countries. I know in Canada, it's about the same. But in the U.S., 40% of, of people living in the U.S. are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. And that includes way too many children. And that... Is, is a percentage that is way too high, in my opinion. That is not acceptable. It's not something we should just learn to live with and accept and, oh, my mom and my dad and my cousin and my neighbor and my, you know, are all going to have some form of cancer, but they'll be okay because they'll get chemo or radiation or take pills or have surgeries or, you know, no, no, we need to address the root causes and we need to do something about it. So, um, you know, we shouldn't be living with cancer. We should be living without cancer. And that is uh, one message, I guess. And the other message of the book is this plaintiff's bar, this mass tort litigation. You know, I really do a deep dive into how these, these mass torts um, work and how they come to trial in this book. And I found it's a really imperfect system and there's a lot of good and bad and ugly, you know, a lot of gray area, right? It's not, yes. it's not necessarily great for everybody, not necessarily great for the plaintiffs who they're supposed to be representing, but it really is the only way we have right now to address corporate wrongdoing or corporate misconduct or defective products or harmful products um, because our regulators are not doing the job. And if our lawmakers and our regulators were doing a better job, maybe we wouldn't need the plaintiff's bar, we would need these lawyers who hold these corporations to account, who bring them to trial. Um, but it's it's the best system we have right now. It's the only way, is, you know, it's the tobacco industry, it's, uh, you know, defective airbags in cars, it's, you know, a whole array of, of things that have been harmful to people that we've, we've discovered. Uh, you know, you talked about Rob Balot and Dark Waters and DuPont and that terrible poisoning uh, that was going on. And, you know, it took basically Rob's work, you know, and, and the farmer that brought the evidence to him and got the ball rolling. But, you know, without, without these lawyers, basically, <laughs> we're, right. we're left with few protections and it shouldn't be that way. Definitely shouldn't be that way. Right. I noticed that when I was speaking with, let's say Robert or similar, very careful because it's like, you can feel like he's had 80 different arrows shot at him. So he's like, I'm just going to be cautious here. This, 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 that's true. Carrie, on this one, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show. This is the book, The Monsanto Papers. This is the author, Carrie Gillum. Glad to have had you on. 
Thank you. Thanks so much. Cool. And we are out.